instead of a giant statue of Paul Bundy, that it's now just a giant statue of Francis McDormand and being like the home of, of Fargo. What do you think the name of the guy is with the axe? Paul what? I, I said Paul Bunyan. Yes, that's what she said, yes. Okay. That's not what she said. Is that not what I said? You said Paul Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Bundy's cousin. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Milan. And this is David, and I finally watched Fargo. Fargo, fuck yourself. That doesn't make any sense. Um, Fargo, fuck yourself makes sense, I guess. So maybe Fargo, fuck yourself makes sense. Is that what you were doing? Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. Fargo, have fuck yourself. Have you seen Argo recently? Um, not recently. Um, I I like this uh, movie. It's been quite a, a bit since I've seen it. Maybe like six years ago since I've I've seen it last. Um, there's this is one of the movies, at least for me, that I remember very clearly scenes of this movie, but I was very surprised in rewatching this film. I was very surprised in realizing how little I remember of like the actual plot of the film. Um, because of course I remember the kidnapping scene and I remember the wood chipper scene, but honestly, everything else in between, I was like, Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. And I was like, all right, all right. I'm, I'm in it now. But yeah, I mean, what did you think of it being like having absolutely, I mean, you must have had some idea coming into this, what it was about. Yeah, I knew it was a, I knew it was a, a kidnapping slash some sort of crime. Um, as like the, it opens, I was like, okay, yeah, now I really remember that I kind of knew what this was about at some point. Um, and I knew about like the infamous wood chipper scene, but I didn't know when it was going to occur and who was going to get put in right. and who was going to be the one putting in the person in the wood chipper. And I didn't know if that person was going to be alive as they were going into the wood chipper. So that was like anticipating that. And just real quickly, I'll say that the only character that I cared about that I didn't want to die was Francis McDormand. Anyone yes. else, I would have been like, okay, whatever. Um, yeah, well, every, everyone else got what they pretty much deserved. Gene didn't deserve anything. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. Except no, you know what? I'm going to say Gene deserved it. Uh, like the, complacency the is just as, just as bad as a crime david i don't i don't know I, I disagree but i i um the reason i didn't i guess care too much about her is just they don't really establish her that much she's just there to be kidnapped um i will say going into this movie the first watch was very weird for me because the opening of the movie says this is based on a true story all the names have been changed of the people still living but all of the events of the people dead, like, you know, in order to honor the dead, all the events are the exact way it happened. And I was like, it is really hard to enjoy this movie now. <laughs> like, this is really bumming me out. And so I finished the first watch of it and I like started looking it up and then immediately was like, oh no, that's not true. This is not based on a true story at all. <laughs> well, of course it's not. Because how, how would they get the, the perspectives of some of the people who have died? It doesn't have to be exactly accurate, but I mean, like you could get, you could reconstruct like what the crime scene and how that happened. You could figure out how Gene died. 
I'm sure that it, William H. Macy would, would squeal at some point. He's still alive and he has like a lot of the information. My um, biggest, my biggest question off of that logic is, uh, is there a million dollars actually buried somewhere out in the middle of Minnesota? No, but there is $920,000 buried somewhere out in the middle of Minnesota. I, I want to get to the, we'll get to that when we get to it. But so once I figured out that this was not real, in fact, they like lied to all the crew and the cast when making the movie for like the first three weeks of it, which also would make that like a weird thing to film. Um, Telling them what? They told him it was based on a true story. Oh, that's evil. <laughs> And in 19, I guess, 95, 96, when this came out, you know, they're filming it a year before that. Like, that would have been a hard thing to, like, check. You know, you couldn't have just pulled out your iPhone and be like, that's fucking bullshit. So, um, <laughs> but that changed. The second watch was so much more enjoyable once I knew it wasn't real. Like, parts of it are based on things that, like, have happened. Like, someone has been put in a wood chipper and someone has hired someone to, like, kidnap their wife to, you know, but like this whole story together and the outcome of it is not real. And that, like I said, makes the second watch a lot more enjoyable. It makes the funny parts a lot funnier. Um, so I definitely, I disagree with the idea of saying this is a true story. Like the, the reasons behind it, you know, or, or whatever. But to me, I enjoyed it much more thinking, like knowing it was fake. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, like obviously this could have all been real, but the way it was directed, written, and the actors, you know, came in and with their characters so exaggerated, I guess you would say, is like it doesn't matter if this is real or not. It's 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 interpreted to be more entertaining than what probably actually happened. So for me, the part of whether this was actually based on a true story never bothered me because I feel like to a certain degree, everyone being like all hunky-dory about like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Minnesota, yeah. It's just like kind of ridiculous. And I was just kind of like along for the ride. But then it occurred to me like, hell, there are actual people like that out there, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, that's how they all talk, so I don't know no, why I know, I know that's how they all talk. I was I'm joking. Not, I'm, not making, I'm not making fun of the way they talk. I'm making fun of the way the characters in the movie kind of perceive and go about life in this, like, super aloof sort of way. Okay. I guess I can accept that. Um, what, what I also, I think my major takeaway from this before we get into, the like, the story is this is one of the most perfectly cast movies I've ever watched. <laughs> like, actually, actually, to that point, I'm, when you say that, I'm not even thinking about the main characters. I'm thinking about all the little side characters. Yeah, but uh, Buscemi and Stormare are fucking perfect as those two characters. Like when, when you see Peter Stormare, you're like, that dude's fucking crazy. And he turns out to be crazy. And Buscemi is like just a slightly altered version of his like reservoir dog character, like a bad guy. That's like not as good at his job, but like still very like principled and like has these ways he thinks the world should be. Um, William H. Macy's wife, like Jean in the movie is just like, like a perfect character for someone who's about to get kidnapped and just this like stay at home housewife mother. Um, obviously Francis McDormand 
her husband. But yeah, all the side characters too. Like the hookers from that one place, like the Blue Ox place. The hookers from the Blue Ox was one of my favorite scenes. Oh my God, yeah, I want to get to it. And then, yeah, Francis's husband, all of the cops she works with. Um, even, even down to William H. Macy's son in the movie too. Uh, what's his name? No, don't Scotty? touch Scotty now. Don't touch Scotty. Oh, don't, don't touch Scotty. Yeah, everyone's just so... And the movie ends with this very like wholesome feel to it for like the rest of the movie not being wholesome at all. But yeah, let's let's kind of break it down because I've actually forgot that the movie started out with um, William H Macy meeting Stroman and Buscemi in the bar in Fargo, in the only part of the movie that takes place in Fargo. You know, quotation marks because it doesn't act, it wasn't actually filmed there. Um, and I read this, I don't know how true it is, but the, I think it's a quote somewhere that the Cohen said they called it Fargo because it's a better, better title than Brainerd. <laughs> yeah, and now, now, you know what's really interesting to me is, is, is the TV show Fargo based in actual Fargo? Like, is it filmed there? No, 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 but like, oh, like story. Oh, yeah, I have no idea. I haven't watched it. Um, I actually thought when I was before I read that, I was like, oh, it kind of makes sense because that's like the inciting incident. That's where the plan goes down and they he gives them the car and that's what sets everything in motion. And they're just like, nah, it's a better title. I mean, it is a better title better title. I mean, another name you could have named it, you could have named it Minneapolis, uh, you can have named it Minnesota, you can have named it um The Great North. The Great North, um The Blue Ox. You know, it was uh, also funny. I was reading some, uh, I was oh. like, Oh, you could have named it the home of Paul Bunyan. That's cool. Yeah. So I was reading that, uh, when I read that thing about why they named it Fargo, I was like Googled further. And there was a, an article from a newspaper called the Brainerd dispatch that the, the title of the article was something along the lines of, Oh, Fargo's so overrated. <laughs> Talking about the town of Fargo. I was just like, that's amazing. Um, but yeah, the opening of this is like really somber, like the music that's playing. It's like when I, I told you after I watched it the first time, I was like, this movie is, it's a dark comedy, but it's way more dark than comedy to me. And obviously the fact that I thought it was real, like played into that, but it starts out very bleak and, um, you know, just with the opening and the music. And then you get the scene in the bar, which is, is very funny. Yeah, I'm, I was laughing. I like, I caught my laugh, myself laughing throughout the whole thing. The whole thing, and, and don't get me wrong, again, I'm not making fun of the Minnesota uh, accent, but they can say anything in that accent, and I'm just cracking up with it. Just, just like literally anything, just like small talk about how the weather's going and, and the plans to like park the car in a certain parking lot. And it's just funny to me, just the way they say everything. So that was like a big comedy side for me too. Yeah. Oh, and one thing real quick, I forgot to mention when I was talking about the casting is that um, William H. Macy like actually like had to beg the Coens for the part. And he like went to them and was like, I really think you're going to screw this movie up if you don't cast me. And I read somewhere else that Bill Pullman was originally going to play that character, <laughs> um, which I love Bill Pullman, but I think this worked out. But in that opening scene, William H. Macy is the one with the, with the accent. And like he, his accent and McDormand's are like competing for like the funniest ones just when they talk. Besides like Jean, the wife who like 
hers just sounds natural. Um, and I read that she was like born in Fargo, so maybe it makes sense. Um, really, like in real life. And um, but so that opening scene is so funny with like William H Macy with that H H Macy with that accent, and then Buscemi just so first of all already pissed off because they've been waiting an hour, <laughs> and then. I love when uh, William H. Macy's like, well, is everything settled? Are we good to go? And he's like, why wouldn't we be good to go? What kind of question is that? Of course we're good to go. And then the next, like a second later, he's like, I'm, I'm just confused. Why are we kidnapping your wife? He's like, this doesn't make any sense. So it's like, we're not set. Yeah. And then also on top of that, it's, he's an hour late. And how like overly apologetic William H. Macy is. And um, he's like, oh, it must have been a, a, a misunderstanding or miscommunication or something like that. And then how it's just Steve Buscemi won't let it go. It's just the whole thing is just fucking hilarious. Well, um, my, favorite, my favorite line, too, and he says it like several times to the movie. He's like, I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. Like, we're not going to argue about this. <laughs> like, I was, we were told 730. And, you know, for a second you think, oh, is Steve Buscemi just lying to be like, difficult but you see like a dozen beer bottles like empty beer bottles sprawled on the table so you they've been there they actually have been there for a while you know right um and what's interesting too is like the that scene is also just set up to kind of lay out what the plan of the movie is and like the way they do it of like Buscemi like this plan doesn't make any sense why are you doing this and so we get like a little explanation but what I think is cool is William H. Macy's like, I'm not really going to get into why I need the money. And like throughout the movie, we never really get the full picture, right? We know that he's like borrowed like what, 320K sort of like by using cars that aren't his as collateral. And then he needs another 750 from his father-in-law to buy a plot of land, but he's only asking for 40,000 from the kidnapping yeah i didn't get it either well no 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 the forty thousand part is he's telling the kidnappers like hey you're gonna ask for 80 i'll take 40 you take 40 but then since he's the middleman he tells the dad they're asking for a million and so he'll give them 40 and he gets 960 that's his plan which also doesn't make any sense why does he's asking the dad for 750 for the parking lot but then he's asking for nine. I guess he has to make the number different than what he asked for the dad already for. Like that would be suspicious if he asked them for seven fifty, and then a day later he's like, "They want seven fifty for Gene." I don't. I don't get it. <laughs> or seven um, seven ninety. Right. Like exactly forty thousand over. Um, yeah. I mean, okay. So since you said that, he would owe seven fifty for the land, and then three twenty. That's still short. Well, no, that's more than, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't really, the math doesn't add up. But what I think is cool is he's like, I don't really want to get into it. And then the movie doesn't feel the need to explain it fully to you. Like, it doesn't actually matter. You just know he's financially in trouble because he, like, kind of got in over his head on a deal. And now he needs a lot of money to get out of it. Or And what what I, well, hold on. What I really like is throughout the movie, he gets into more and more financial debt as the movie progresses. So he has this plan to get a certain amount of money because he owes a certain amount of money. And then as the movie goes on, something falls through, something doesn't go right, or he's caught in a lie. And now he owes even more money and even more money. And it's just this like snowball effect of how this dude's life is just a 
shit snowball. I don't think he can turn shit into snowballs, nor do I think he owed more money throughout the movie. I think things just kept not working out. But um, what was also interesting, and we're not to it yet, but I want to talk about it, I guess, is he makes it seem as if, if, like, let's say this just came out, right, that he was in over his head. He makes it seem as if, like, Gene would divorce him, the father would take care of Gene and Scotty, and then he'd just be out on his own. Like, that's what he... It's probably exactly what would happen. I guess, but it's just weird. It's just weird that, I like, he thinks his relationship with his wife is, like, so tenuous. They seem to... She seems to love him. <laughs> Maybe not the other way around. Yeah, um, you know, because I, I still had a vague memory of, of him, you know, kidnapping his wife or hiring people to kidnap his wife when I went into it, especially after that first opening scene, I was like, wow, his, his wife must be a real bitch, like a real, um, like unlovable, horrible bitch. And then she's not. And then I'm just being like, holy crap, William H. Macy is an awful person. Well, and the thing is, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to think about like, is he, like how horrible of a person is he, right? Because to me, it seems like he's just kind of an idiot more than a bad guy because he thinks he's come up with this perfect plan. But in reality, this plan only works if every single part goes exactly to plan, right? Like if right. anything goes wrong, for example, the bad guys forgetting to put plates on the car you stole for them, then you're screwed. Or your father-in-law decides that, no, I'm not going to give you the million. I'm going to take the million. Or a sheriff comes to your car dealership and asks you to for the full inventory on any stolen cars that you might have. Well, that's because of the license plate, though. That's what set that off. Yeah, but that, that wouldn't have happened without it. But my point is, is like this plan is just so... Also, wait, real quick. Is, is that the only like car sales lot in like all of Fargo and Brainyard? Well, no, but as Francis tells us at the very end, um, a car with a dealer car was used in this crime and the bad guys called this dealership a day before the crime. So it'd be a hefty coincidence if this wasn't where that car came from. Um, and we can talk about like more why she went back to him later. But uh, to me, that makes sense that she would be like, you know, this you're acting fishy. No, that, that does make sense. The, the other thing too, is this plan relies on bad guys, not being really bad guys. Yeah, that's true. Like I mean, it relies on just your, your average, but like one, it relies on them being very good at their job, but not like horrible people that may like do bad things to your wife. Or maybe he just didn't, maybe he is a really bad guy and he didn't care what happened to his wife. I think it's, I think it's what you said in the beginning is, is not so much that he cared or didn't care. He's just such an idiot that he probably didn't think about it that way. Right. Yeah. Like he, and like, he's wholesome enough to not like think about, oh, I'm going to hire these guys to kidnap my wife. Um, oh, I'm sure they won't rape her, you know, or anything like that. Right. And then, you know, it's also this movie is 
a lot of very short back and forth scenes. Um, like the next thing after this is the scene at the house and he asks the step, you know, he asks the father-in-law about the 750 for the, the parking lot. And the father-in-law was like, ah, I don't really know about that. And then after that, it's Peter Stormare just saying pancakes house. Yeah. Pancakes yeah. house. And then there's literally a two second scene or literally a 15 second scene of them screwing the prostitutes in the blue ox and then a f- slow fade to black. Well, but then it goes back to them just watching TV with them. <laughs> it's like, it like ask them to stay over. That's yeah. true. But I think the, the, the scenes, they're one, this is, this is a comedy, so it's purposely trying to go for laughs. So like showing these two bumbling idiot bad guys who are like kind of like an odd couple where they just don't get along um, is funny. But uh, also in between that, you forgot about the True Coat customer who gets really pissed about oh, the true the, coat customer about $500 on the like extra for the true coat. Oh, well, you know, we've, we've never done this before, but I'm going to knock a whole hundred dollars off. You're a fucking liar. <laughs> you called me and told me it was all taken care of. I like how at the end, he just like, oh, I'm just going to, just going to get my checkbook. It was like, fuck it. What is $400? Whatever. Like what, what, what am I going to do? I, I want the, yeah, I want it. And I love um, how every time someone curses in Minnesota, someone next to them, like their wife or something is like, honey, no, honey, no, please don't. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're borderline Canadians. So it's like, that's why <laughs> it makes sense. Um, the next scene is Wade calling and saying that he might want to do the deal that the numbers look very sweet. And I love that him and his uh, his accountant, Stan Grossman, every time, like, looks the numbers look very sweet. It looks like a sweet deal. Um, and at this point, you're like, oh, shit, we need to we need to call off this kidnapping. But he like he can't figure out how to do it. And in the it's it's funny is like in the end. He probably shouldn't have called. He should have called off the kidnapping. But because his like father in law wasn't actually going to do this deal with him, he shouldn't have called it off in his head. Like it ended up working out. I mean, at that point, if he was able to get a hold of them and call it off, and then how would he have gotten the money to pay them for their trouble at that point? You know what I mean? And then yeah. he would have, and then realizing that the deal was different in, in his father-in-law's head, like they wanted to invest in the in the lot in the property and not give him the money then what then we would have had to do like a five minute scene of him calling trying to reach them um again calling them back and you know uh, oh no the deal's back on yeah yeah and you know stormare would have just been like no we made a deal we're going to kidnap your wife and you're going to give us forty thousand dollars i like when he comes home like she's kidnapped right and the house is a wreck right and um and we'll get back we'll get to that scene but I just love how he comes home with a bag of groceries, like, like he's totally forgotten about this. And then um, you hear him being like, oh, no, oh, Stan, no, oh, my God, oh, it's horrible, oh, man. And then he's just, it's just practicing on the phone. But then when he actually gets a hold of someone on the phone, it's the secretary and just very calm and collectively. He's like, um, can I talk to Wade, please? Can I talk to Stan Wade, please? Stan is Stan Grossman is the accountant. Uh, Wade, 
Wade Gustafson is the is father-in-law. The father-in-law? Oh, okay. Um, I do think the the wife Jean is very like underappreciated in this movie. I mean, like as a character, she's great. Like the stuff with Scotty when she's telling him he can't play hockey. Like her accent is the most over the top, but it's like also the funniest. Yeah. And then in a second, we'll get to the kidnapping scene too, which is hilarious. Um, but she is is really great in that. I yeah. love how every time like the father-in-law walks into the family's business, um, Jerry, William H. Macy, has to act like he's got everything under control. Like his father-in-law is such an overpower, overbearing force in the household that he has to kind of act like, oh no, everything's cool. I've got, I've got this, you know? Well, yeah, and he just doesn't want Wade like interfering. Like when Scotty starts cursing and he's on the phone with him, he's like, he's like, Scotty, shut up, you know, dude, don't don't use that. And Wade's like, well, what's happening over there? He's like, nothing. Like it's not any of your business. Um, The funny thing too is, um, so when after before the meeting with uh, Wade and Stan, uh, Jerry tries to call it off and then goes to Shep. And Shep's like, um, you know, I, I vouched for Gare. Uh, who's this other guy? And he's like, oh, I think his name's Carl, whatever. Gare is the crazier of the two. Shep vouched for the crazy dude and not for the more normal Steve Buscemi character. Wait. Wait, you've, you've lost me. So who vouched? Shep, for- the Native American fellow. The, the mechanic. Yes. Yes. He, Jerry, William H. Macy goes up to him and he's like, hey, I can't get a hold of Gare or his friend. And he's like, well, who's the friend? And he's like, oh, Carl something. He's like, well, I didn't vouch for Carl. I vouched for Gare. Gare played by Peter Stormare. That's the crazier dude. Shep vouched for the fucking crazy guy. See, that doesn't make sense. Because if that was true, then why did Shep go after Steve Buscemi in that hotel room with the belt? Because he was the one he found there. But how did he how did he know who he was if he didn't know who he was? Well he first uh-huh. of all, I I took that as being I took that as being Shep's place. Okay. And Shep was coming home to his place because it wasn't it was an apartment, right? Right. And the you know, it wasn't the hooker's apartment and it wasn't Buscemi's apartment in a city he doesn't live in. So I thought that was Shep's apartment and he just found Steve Buscemi there and he was going to beat either one of their asses because... Oh, I thought it was like a like a hotel room. Okay, I misunderstood that. Um, but I just think it's so crazy that he vouched for the psycho dude rather than the relatively normal bad guy. I think we need to talk about real quick... Well, I guess we can... We're kind of... How psycho is... Um... Peter Stormare's character because the trip to Minneapolis um, where one of my favorite scenes is Steve Buscemi is like, wow. So you haven't said a goddamn word, the goddamn word, the whole trip. All you give me is a no, like, no, that's your magnum opus, you know, the whole thing like that. Right. And then he's like, that's fine. You want to be quiet? Two can play at this quiet game. We can just be quiet. Just stay quiet the whole ride. Just stay in quiet. 
just being quiet. And I was like, this scene could literally go on for an hour and a half and just be as entertaining. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great. I think that's what what makes this movie so great is you basically have like cartoon characters <laughs> in a real life scenario in a Isn't... very somber street movie, but all the characters are heightened up to 11. I think you just described every Coen Brothers movie, honestly. <laughs> Well, yeah, probably most of them. <laughs> most of them. Um, but I think that that is what makes this great. And that, that scene you're talking about is really funny. And then after that, you have it a couple times, but the guy from GMAC asking for the serial numbers for the cars and William H. Macy just trying to give him the runaround, like, oh, fax those over. He's like, well, no, you see, the fax is the problem. Initially, I don't need a fax. He's like, I'll send them right over. Don't worry, we'll be fine. And then just like trying to get off the phone with them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that, okay. So now we talk about the kidnapping. The scene where they walk, like where Buscemi walks up to the window and is trying to look through, and Gene is just staring at him, like, "What is this guy doing? Like, <laughs> I don't. What is happening?" And the then longest process. <laughs> it's that is hilarious. Like the Buscemi part of it is hilarious, and then Stormare coming in like a psycho is like scary. <laughs> Um, but then her running around in the shower curtain after she's been sort of found out. Yeah, actually, I thought that was really smart. Like opening the window, knowing that you don't have time to go through the window. So she just hides in the shower. That was cool. Yeah, I thought it was a little like the water dripping is what tipped him off. Was it the know. water dripping or I just thought he just kind of like saw her shadow back there in the I reflection just... of the mirror. I don't know. The water dripped and then he looked up. So I'm not sure. Uh, he was um, bandaging his arm for what again? I forget. He like she bit it. him. Oh, she bit the shit out of him. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that scene is is very funny for how funny a kidnapping can be. And it happens a little later, but we can talk about it now. But when they get to the cabin um, and she's running around like with the with the thing on her head. Yes. Like I'm laughing as much as Buscemi's laughing because it's just, it's so funny. Well, the fact that she basically knocks herself out and makes her like the most easily kidnapped victim is also funny. Um, right. Cause she could have, she could have, once she went past Stormare, she could have just ran out of the house. Like no one was there to stop her and she fell down the stairs on her own. Well, cause she was wrapped in the shower curtain. Cause she didn't, she didn't have the, I know, I'm saying if she didn't freak out, right. Like she, like, that's what makes it like comical. It's great. No, no, a hundred percent. Um, and then. Well, okay. right after that's the scene we've talked about with the father-in-law and Stan, you know, saying, you know, asking what his finder fee finder's fee is going to be and him being like, no, no, I just, you loan me the money. And like, we're not a bank. We're not a bank, Jerry. Um, and I think the final, like just stab in the side is, well, you know, if, if you're not interested in doing this, how about we just go back, which is basically like, well, how about Stan and I will just go do this deal without you and not give you a finder's fee? Like, is that okay? Yeah. That, that shot where he walks to his car in the snow-covered parking lot is amazing. Yeah. With like the planters, like every which way. It reminds me of like a pattern on her Christmas sweater or something. And then the uh, him freaking out because he can't scrape off the uh, the ice on his windshield. 
Yeah. Um, Can you imagine how cold that place must be? That you walk in to a building and your windshield's fine, and like 20 minutes later you walk back out and it and the ice is frozen over so hard you can't scrape it off. No, that's I why I live. That's why I live in Florida. I couldn't. I couldn't even imagine living in a place like that. Um, yeah. After that, we get to the triple homicide. Ah, uh, okay. So this is definitely one of those scenes that I remember from years and years ago. I mean, you cannot forget the way this goes down. And this is where you get your first real glimpse of um, Peter Stormare's character being completely psycho. This is where it's confirmed. You you kind of know it, and then this is where it's just like. What's funny too is Buscemi knows it, and it doesn't seem like they know each other all that well. But yeah. as the cops like walking up, he's like, "I got it. Let me handle it. I have it." And then Buscemi's way of handling it is like having a fifty dollar bill like slightly stick out of the wall, and just like, "Why don't we just handle this right here, officer?" Instead of like, "Just take the ticket," I guess. <laughs> or I mean, he probably it's probably Minnesota, right? Like he probably wouldn't have even given him a ticket. He would have just been like. Here's my license. Here's my registration. I'm so sorry. I forgot to take the dealer dealer plates off. Um, it won't happen again. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, okay, no problem. Have a nice night. You know, that's it. But then everything has to go to shit. Well, the other thing, too, is so if they if he remembers to put on the dealer tags, he doesn't get pulled over. Nothing like this doesn't really go that wrong, although Wade later refusing to not take the money would still have caused a lot of it to go wrong. No. And I'm not even saying like, I want the bad guys to succeed in this. I mean, obviously this way is so much more interesting. I know. I'm just talking about like the mistakes that they made, but then <laughs> Buscemi is apparently sitting in the patrol car waiting for storm air to come back for a, a great period of time and doesn't grab the notepad that identifies the car they're driving. <laughs> Also, the fact that that other deputy or um, officer with Francis Dor- um Lou. Lou thought that the DLR was like, oh, yeah, we're looking for a license plate starting with DLR. And she was like, not sure if I agree with your police work, Lou. Yeah, it's so great. Like, all right, here's was... my question. Do you think, um, do you know who her character name? I forgot her character name. Margie, Marge. Marge, Marge, Officer Marge. Um, do you think that she's a great detective? Do you think everyone's so stupid around her that just at average intelligence, she could have solved this case? Or um, the, other, the other one is she's still a great detective, but very little and definitely not this dramatic uh, of crimes probably happened between Fargo and Brainyard. But do you think she's just kind of like trained all her life for something like this to happen? And then when it does happen, she knows exactly how to handle it? Well, she's the the chief of their little department, right? So she is the best. Of the best. That she solves the way the triple homicide happened within 30 seconds. Yeah. She literally, well, first of all, we didn't even mention the, so the, uh, the two people drive by and see that the cop's been shot in the head and then Stormare chases them down, which, by the way, if they, instead of crashing, had just pulled off and turned off their lights, he probably would have never found them because he, like, couldn't see shit. 
Right. And then that dude just leaves his girlfriend or wife or whatever, just like, fuck it, I'm getting out of here. Yeah. <laughs> dies. Good thing he died. Um, but yeah, she comes up to the scene after rolling out of bed, after getting some eggs, and it's just like, yeah, so these two probably saw the uh, the cop get killed and then uh, got chased down here. And then the uh, there's a big guy here. This guy's pretty big with this boot size. And then she like goes to the cop, the patrol car, and she's like, oh, these are smaller shoes. And this smaller guy probably had to wait here. And she's like, holy shit. Like, you know what I mean? She diagnosed everything just standing there. And I love right after that, she's like, oh, do you, uh, do you, think, do you think Dave is open? And Lou's like, oh my God, do you think he had something to do with it? She's like, no, I just want to go pick up some night crawlers. <laughs> um, also, the fact that Steve Buscemi, who waited in the, officer car, in the officer's car, um, had the decency to turn off the engine when he left the car. I thought that was funny. It's just like, don't want don't to waste gas. Back to your question, though, about Frances McDormand's character. I think her, her husband they're like nonchalance about the whole thing, but hers specifically is just like, why you're like, is she a good detective? Cause she just plays like she's oblivious, but she's also when, incredibly lucky. What do you mean? Like at the end where she just drives past um, the lake and just sees her car. Well, I don't know how big that lake was. When we see Stormare running across it, it doesn't look that huge. So it looks like she's just driving around it. And she got a tip from that guy that talked to the bartender that talked to that cop. You know, we'll get into that in a minute. But she got a tip that there was a loud mouth around that lake admitting to killing people. Oh, yeah. I never, I, I, I don't think the movie, I guess you could just logically assume that that cop got the information to her. But the movie never explained that he finally got the information to her. But my question is, is that... It, it does. Okay. Well, then I just missed it. My, my big question for you, David, is um, if there was a crime, who could solve it faster? Sherlock Holmes or Officer Chief Officer Marge? Um, Pretty I don't close. know. Yeah? I don't know. Marge Gunderson. I mean, Marge... Marge would definitely make you feel less stupid about it, you know? We're talking like uh, Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, right? But like any, any Sherlock. Or, or RDJ Sherlock. I need to know. It's important. It's important? All right, then Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. Yeah, he's definitely going to make you feel like an idiot as he's doing it. Um, and he won't explain it to you right away. <laughs> so you just find out at the end how how he, he solved it, whereas Marge is just going to tell you right away to save the suspense. So... I think they'd both get the job done, um, obviously. Yeah. Um, I also like that when Marge gets to the crime scene, she's like, where is everybody? And Lou's like, it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, man. So then we get to... The, the diner scene with Wade, Jerry, and Stan Grossman. Yeah. Where Jerry is explaining the deal, and I... My favorite part of this is his, him explaining, like, Jerry, they want a million dollars. And Jerry's like, well, you know what? How about we call the cops or what about half a million? Or no, I want to be not the one Jerry. To Wade. Wade is saying this. Yeah, to Jerry. And Jerry says, no, no way. This is my deal here, Wade. And it's like, 
Well, that's such a weird line to say in this scenario. Not only is it a weird line, but I love how Stan Grossman is the deciding factor in both of these dudes' decisions. Like, they cannot agree on anything. And then Stan is like the one who's like, no, no, I, I agree with Jerry. And then everyone has to agree with Jerry. And then at the end, Stan is like, no, I, I, I agree with Wade on this one. And then it has to go the way Wade wants it to go. It's just it's hilarious. Fu- it's funny that you were doing the accent when Stan doesn't have that accent in this movie. He talks just, like a normal person. Does he? <laughs> you know, also too, it's, it, he's like, uh, Wade, the, the father-in-law is like, you know, how about we offer 500,000 and, and Stan's like, we're not horse trading here. Like we don't have any cards to play. You like, you just have to pay them the money. And Wade just doesn't want to hear giving up a million dollars, even for his daughter, who he seems to love. Um, so yeah, well, you don't that's... understand, uh, David, he's a real businessman. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that is, that is true. He's um, doing real business. After we, we already talked about the gene running around with their head covered and, and running into things. Um, the next scene is where, uh, Marge comes back to her office and her husband's there with food and he's just constantly eating throughout the movie and just like brings her food and then like cooks her dinner and just is like, la da da, like, uh, you know, so happy with, with whatever. I think um, we forgot to mention a couple of things. Um, really important things. Number one, um, Nightcrawlers, me learning this throughout the movie, is not a type of pastry, but is worms. That's funny. So I know Nightcrawlers are worms, but when she said the first time, I want to get Nightcrawlers for him, I thought it was going to be some sort of pastry, right? <laughs> And then she walks in with the little bag. Right. And then I watch the movie the second time and she says, I got to get nightcrawlers. I was like, oh yeah, she's got to get those pastries for him. (laughs) And then I see the worms again. I was like, why did I think it was pastries again? And the second thing we need to talk about is the fact that Marge is like very, very pregnant this entire time. Yeah. Like what? Two months away, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very. That's one of the reasons I was so concerned that I hoped nothing happened to her. Um, and so then, uh, the other cop comes in and says that, first of all, the other cop comes in in the midst of the discovering a triple homicide and is like, Oh, Hey, how, uh, how is your, uh, your painting going? And the guy's like, Oh, good, good. Um, like not the, not the triple homicide is the big talk of the town, but this, uh, stamp competition, whoever wins the best painting gets to be put on a stamp. That's that's like the real important part of this whole thing. But then the cop Lou tells uh, Marge Francis McDormand that these guys registered their car, the Sierra, the tan Sierra car at the Blue Oxmo Hotel, um, but didn't, but left the license plate blank. And she's like, "Oh, that's huge." Um, why the fuck would they register the actual car that was just involved in a crime? Like this hotel clearly wasn't going out and checking like what are you idiots doing yeah um i (laughs) i thought they didn't register it i thought the hotel registered it well it's like based on what they're telling them so i thought like it was a valet sort of deal have you been to a like a motel or a hotel i've been to i've been to both i didn't really think of it as a motel i guess you're right it is a motel Hotels usually have valet. 
So usually the valet fills out whatever the card is, you know? No, that's not how they, that's how the nice ones work, maybe. I mean, that is how the nice ones work, but I never found myself in a seedy motel with hookers. I don't know about you, David, but that's not me. They weren't in the room, but they were just adjacent to the hotel. There was like a walking distance. Um, you already talked about one of your favorite scenes, but when Francis is talking to the hookers, just like describing him as a funny looking guy, she's like, oh, yeah? Do you have anything else? Is there anything else you can describe about him? Nah, just funny looking. How was he fun? How was he funny looking? He's just uncircumcised. <laughs> was he un? Was he funny looking in any other sort of way? It's like <laughs> no, nah. nah, just. But then she just like at the end is like they said they were going to the Trin Cities. Is that helpful? And like the line reading of like, oh yeah, you betcha it is. Like Francis McDormand's is so is so good. That was yeah. like the the top level of the accent right there <laughs> um just the oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah like that whole thing right um the other i love how the kind of a big break in the case is the fact that the hookers describe Buscemi as a funny looking guy and then the guy at the bar who tipped off the cop also described him as a fu- as a generally funny looking guy yeah. it's like how, how funny looking just generally funny looking yeah and it's like, honestly, if I met Steve Buscemi, not saying like, hey, what did that guy look like? Oh, that guy looked like Steve Buscemi. But in any other circumstance, I'd be like, it's just a funny, it's just a funny looking guy. Yeah. Um, the next small little scene is when Buscemi is hitting the TV, trying to get it to play. I don't get the point of this scene, except that Stormare is just staring at Gene the entire time. And I don't know if they're trying to allude to something that happened there. I mean, in real life, if that had happened, he probably but would have hold, done something there. Hold on, though, because what I found interesting is that every time that Steve Buscemi hit the TV, there was this sort of image on the TV. And uh-huh. when, you, when you cut back to Stormare watching TV... It looks like that he actually went over and like fixed it himself. Right. He's not an idiot. Um, and it was the same thing, like the same exact thing playing on TV that Steve Buscemi was. This is like hours later. It was the same scene. It's probably like a day later, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought that scene was is is weird. <laughs> I didn't, I really didn't, get the I didn't catch the storm air was was staring at her. I thought he was staring at the television because you know you had that really cool. What I really like is all the transitions of this movie. It was this really slow zoom in of the TV, the static of the TV, and then when you got really close, where it was just screen, it changed to like a nature channel, and then when it backed out, you were in a Marge. Marge's bedroom, and she's watching the Nature Channel with her husband. Well, as he's hitting it, it's cutting to Stormare staring, and the direction he's staring is towards the oven where Gene is, and it keeps cutting back and forth between them. Oh. And so that's why I was like, what's the point of this? Um, it, it almost feels like he was just like, I don't, I'm just going to kill her. Like, I don't, I don't care about that. Like, we'll get our money, and like, she's going to die. And I feel like, you know, spoiler alert, she dies in the end, and he's just like, oh, she she wouldn't stop shrieking and it's like okay so he killed her yeah um and then we get to as a uh as a juxtaposition of that we get the mike yeah 
is it Yanagita? Yamagita call? Yamagita call? Yeah, man. Um, Yanagita. I got a lot to say about this scene, dude. Well, first the phone call. It's just. I got a. I got a lot to. I got a lot to say about the whole thing. <laughs> we'll go for it. Start it out. So, she gets a call in the middle of the night from, I guess, someone from her high school, right? Right. And um, at first, I was like, "Geez, who calls at like three in the morning?" But I guess she just went to bed early because it was like in reality like eleven thirty at night. But then again, who like who calls someone from high school that they haven't talked to in years at eleven thirty p.m. Right, right, and I don't know about you, but I would have just hung up on the dude in the first like five seconds. But everyone in Minnesota seems to have this politeness about them where they just can't do that. Uh, so, so they have this whole conversation where he's like asking her out. Um, what I think she thinks is just like a casual friend. He doesn't together. ask her out at that point, does he? I think he's just talking to her. Well, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. You can take it from here. Well, uh, yeah, it's very odd, right? It, the conversation doesn't really make any sense. And Francis is just too nice to be like, what the hell is going on here? Um, and I, we can get to the scene in a minute when it happens, but they end up like having this dinner while she goes to Minneapolis because she ends up going to Minneapolis. The... The scene where they meet for dinner seems kind of pointless, but I want to discuss it when we get there. But yeah, the overall, his character is just super odd. And the, the dinner scene is super, like the, the phone call is just is one thing, but the dinner scene when we get to it is, is a bit much. Oh, we're not. I thought we were getting into it now. There's a lot of things that happen in between. Really? Uh, yeah, there's a shit ton that happens in between. Oh. Well, first, there's the, uh, there's the quick scene of, um, jerry trying to sell a car to this guy and asking him telling him about the true coat and the guy's like i don't want that and he's like yeah you don't want that um <laughs> and probably my, still sell it to him anyways oh it's it's already going to be on there but my favorite part of the movie is when uh steve buscemi calls jerry and is like things have changed jerry blood has been shed <laughs> like, we need the <laughs> whole right. 80k and jerry's like what no, that we didn't agree that da, da, da. and he's like don't ever interrupt me, motherfucker. I'm not going to debate you. <laughs> no, no, no. And the reason he's doing this, wait, wait, wait. You missed the big part where Shep actually went to visit him, right? This is the scene where we talked about where he got beat with the belt. That didn't happen yet. It didn't happen yet? No. The reason he's telling him that he wants the whole 80K is because they had to kill the three people. And now they're just like, you know, we've, this has become so much bigger than just fake kidnapping your wife for a couple days and getting, you know, 40,000. This is like, we could do time for this. So we want 80K. Yeah, I guess. But that's like my favorite part. It's Buscemi's best part of him just yelling at, at Jerry and Jerry like, well, no, which I don't, once again, is like, he's getting it. He went from 960,000 to 920. Like, what are you, what's happening here? <laughs> like, why are you, I still don't understand how much money you need, but it seems like you should be all right. Well, that, wouldn't it seem odd if he was super complacent about like? Yeah, I I, I agree. He needs to, but it, it didn't seem like he was he was faking it. Um, right after this is where Marge is eating at the uh, eating with her husband at the buffet place, and the cop just stops by to tell them that like, oh, that that hotel room where those guys stayed with the Tansiera, they called two numbers in 
uh, Minneapolis and one was this Shep Proudfoot guy. And so that's when she decides to go to Minneapolis um, and she meets Shep Proudfoot and uh, he then gets really scared. And Jerry sees her talking to him. He's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And like he goes back to his office and then she comes to talk about Jerry and she's uh, talked to Jerry and he's like, she asks, have any vehicles gone missing like a tan Sierra off your lot? And he says, no. And she just believes him very quick. She's like, okay, that, that's fine. Um, it's, it's interesting with what we'll talk about later, how quickly she believes him and lets him go. And it does make you question like how good of a, a cop is she in that instant? But then I think she definitely redeems it later. Yeah. But you say that, but she has no reason to not believe him. Like he is the least suspicious person on the list at this point, especially since she basically has Shep Proudfoot dead to rights. Um, you know, being on parole and uh, dealing with criminal activity and she could easily have that whole thing go down. I'm surprised that she didn't like have a tail on him because if she had a tail on him, she, they would find Steve Buscemi right away. Yeah, I know, but it's the Brainerd Police Department. How many cops do they have? Like, they don't probably have the ability to call a tail. David, they could have put Lou on him. Come on. Yeah, that would have solved everything. Um, uh, real quick, the, the, in between all this, uh, Wade and Grossman meet with Jerry again, and Wade's like, I'm delivering the money. Jerry does not do enough to convince them. He can tell them whatever he wants. He could say, they told me they are going to kill her. Instead, he's like, these are nervous, dangerous men. Not, they said, if anyone else shows up, they will kill Jean immediately and we will never see her again. And he just like, he, he gives in too easily. Like, Jerry, you, like, you've gone this far. You have to commit. Yeah. Like, that's, there's no coming back if you're not the one that delivers the money. Everything's fucked. You have to win that battle, and he doesn't win that battle. Well, I mean, even more so than that, it's just like <clears throat> it's it's stupid people doing stupid things again, right? Um, because in any other circumstance of this being real and Wade is like, I'm taking the money in, right? I'm the one to take the money. Right. That that would not that would not fly. Like, I mean, why why would you do that as a as a father putting your daughter at risk you see what i'm saying well it's because wade cares about the money more than his daughter no i know but you would never like you said kind of a cartoonish right outlook on on this also wouldn't it be very suspicious if all of a sudden after this whole ordeal with kidnapping and everything your son-in-law just became nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars richer jerry how did you uh we went out to the people with that parking lot and um they said you bought it and i'm just <laughs> confused about how that happened oh yeah wait well i went to a bank motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> they gave me one plus prime <laughs> um, um the other thing that we the other scene that happened in the middle of this is buscemi stealing the license plate and then getting really pissed about $4. Yeah. Uh, which is a great scene. It doesn't matter much. 
it's another one of those like Steve Buscemi being very principled and like pissed that this guy, he's like, you think you have a lot of power, don't you? You fucking asshole. <laughs> but I mean, it's kind of, you say it has no point, but it is payoff for a scene coming up later. Sort Cause of. Because I, I feel like those scenes juxtaposed uh, to each other was like, makes the latter uh, scene even funnier. Right. Um, now we get to the Mike yanagita dinner um okay so the guy's a psychopath right we find we find that out later yes um you could assume it from the dinner but first of all she's obviously like seven eight months pregnant and married and married she tells him this and yet he like slides over on the booth and the acting skills that francis mcdormand has about like how uncomfortable she looks is awesome it's amazing the way she handles it i don't she didn't look uncomfortable to me she just looked she looked very comfortable in telling him like this is not happening but then sort of giving him an ability to save face by saying like oh no i was just telling you to sit back over there so i don't have to turn my neck um and he's obviously like super embarrassed but how like stern she was and how like immediate she was like no go sit back over there um but yeah that was the most awkward awkward part of the movie it gets more awkward when he says that he ended up marrying one of their high school classmates linda cooksey yeah and then linda cooksey dies of leukemia and he's really torn up about it he's just so lonely and i was like damn i feel for the guy because yeah, he's creepy and weird, but like if your wife died from from leukemia, I would also try to like reach out to other like I don't know like yeah, but like, maybe not pregnant married women. Yeah, but I'm just saying like you feel bad for the guy, but then go ahead, David, take it away. Well, you find out that he's a liar and that Linda Cooksey is still alive. Um, and they never got married. Correct. That he kind of stalked her. It's funny too, is um, I was reading something that a lot of people think this scene is just like the most useless scene in the movie. Cause it's like, what does it have to do with anything else? Um, but right after the scene where she finds out that he's a liar, she sort of has this moment of realization and goes back to Jerry and is like adamant, like, Hey, you need to explain to me why you know that this Tansier didn't come from this lot. She's like, cause it makes no sense it would be such a coincidence that the bad guys who had this car called someone that worked here, but didn't steal the car from here. She's like, that just, it wouldn't work that way. Um, which causes Jerry to freak out. Cause he's like, no, I've, you know, I've, the way he acts with her is just like, you know, I've, I've, I've done everything I can. And it's like, you, you're acting so guilty that you've now made yourself a suspect. If you had just told her, you know what? I don't, I don't think we lost it, but I will do one today and I will get in contact with you. That would at least buy you time to escape instead of running away and then driving right past your window that, so she can see you leaving. Um, on top of all of this, she asks where his father-in-law is at. Well, that's because um, he, he, he initially is like, 
you know, I've done everything I can. I'm not doing anything else. She's like, okay, can I talk to the owner? And he's like, <laughs> he just stares at her and is like, oh, fuck. Because I don't think we've explained to the audience that. Well, we haven't gotten, we've, we've skipped around and I yeah, want to yeah. get back to it. But yeah, the father-in-law is dead. Um, well, but now without taking a good chunk of Steve Buscemi's face with him. Well, yeah. And so before that, Steve Buscemi is out with another hooker. And I love when he's just having small talk with her. And she's like, first of all, she's like, you know, he asks her, have you ever been to this club before? And she's like, no, is it pretty good? And he's like, well, when you have Jose Feliciano playing, like no complaints and you see her face, she's just like, meh, like, I don't like this guy. Uh, But then he asks her, he's like, so do you find working at the, as a hooker, uh, do you find working for the escort service interesting work? And she's like, what the fuck are you asking me? Like, (laughs) what kind of question is this? I mean, honestly, though, that's kind of a question I would ask, too. Oh, there we go. Um, and then it cuts to them having sex and her, like, I don't know if that's her attempt at dirty talk, but she's just like, oh, what's happening down there? Oh, oh, I feel a little something now. And he's just like, like closing his eyes and trying to like keep himself in the mood. And she's just like, like, I don't know what's going on. And then Shep uh, comes in and beats the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like really to the point of like, I almost thought he was going to kill him. Like, I don't know how he made it out of there. <laughs> yeah. But like, okay. So he was, uh, he was obviously whipping himself, whipping himself. He was whipping him with the buckle side of the belt, which I don't know if you've ever been spanked like growing up, David, and like hit with a belt that hurts but I couldn't imagine getting hit with the buckle side of the belt must be agony. I thought you were about to explain that you were beat with the buckle side. And I was like, do you want to talk about it more? Like, no, 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 that, that must be the worst. Um, But what's so funny is like all the transitions and the juxtaposition through the whole movie is just kind of the comedic timing is kind of the lifeblood of comedy with this movie. So him being in the middle of being beat, with the belt by Shep and then cut like hard cut to Steve Buscemi being on the phone to Jerry being like, we're doing this shit now, man. You well, know? He said, what's also great about that is he said 30 minutes, we wrap this up and there's exactly 30 minutes left in the movie at that point. Oh really? Like, almost to the second. Um, <laughs> I love when he's like, you know, and if you don't do this, I'm going to come shoot you. I'm going to shoot all your fucking stupid kids right in the back of the head. And he's just like, no, you leave Scotty out of this. Like, he doesn't know the name of your kid. Why are you telling him the name of your kid? That's not like, you're an idiot. Um, and then Wade takes off with the million dollars. And apparently Wade's whole plan here, because he desperately doesn't want to give up his money, is to shoot the bad guys with the gun he's brought. Mm-hmm. And yep. when he gets there, the guy's like, hey, give me the money. Steve Buscemi wants the money. He's like, no, Gene, no money. It just keeps repeating it over and over again. And Steve Buscemi's like, well, fuck this, and kills him. But not immediately. Because Wade gets a shot off. And what I don't understand is, why does Wade not keep shooting? Like, you shot him in the face. Yeah. Just keep shooting him. Like, what was the plan here? Yeah, but he got shot in, like, center mass. In the gut. Yeah, gut shots are the worst. Yeah, so I'm thinking maybe he had enough gumption to get one shot off, but like got uh, weak real fast after that. 
I mean, David, you can't really like say shit if you've never been shot in the gut before. I just did. You have no room to talk. Weak shit, Wade. You died because you're a bitch. And so that leads to the kind of the perfect comedic timing where he shoots Buscemi in the face. Buscemi's cheek is like open wound, bleeding, gushing blood. He goes, he tries to go through the, the, the um, toll clerk again. Uh, and this time he's just like gushing blood and the toll clerk is like, holy fuck, what, the, what is this? And he's like, open the fucking gate. <laughs> what I understand is why that dude wouldn't open the gate for him. Maybe he just didn't do it quick enough and Buscemi got impatient. But also like, why did you kill the guy? I guess because he's a witness, but you've left so many other witnesses. Like you haven't been very like killed the inconspicuous. Yeah, the toll guy's dead because you see when jerry follows wade and he like is coming up the the parking garage as buscemi's leaving and when he gets to the top he opens his trunk which means he's just going to stick the father-in-law's body in there which is like what was why is that the plan just like leave him up there like leave him up there go home um yeah i don't know it's really 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 stupid because you know Stan also knows about this plan, so he's going to know that there's these other bad guys. Like, you could be a little bit in the clear on this. Um, but, yeah, when, when Jerry William H. Macy comes back down, you see the toll booth guy is, like, his feet in the air and just, like, a ton of blood everywhere. Um, so he's dead. So, um, okay, hold on. I'm, I'm trying to collect my thought here couple of things that I, because I, we're nearing the very end of the movie, a couple of things I want to go back and just make clear. First of all, Wade's a piece of shit. Um, he, he, I n- did not feel bad when he died. However, I have to say how stupid and cocky he was about like being tough with, with his daughter's kidnappers thinking like, Oh, they won't shoot me. And then just like, like the realization of how like idiotic he was when he did get shot. I thought that was pretty great. Cause it's like, dude, what do they have to lose? Like you brought the money. Like if you were going to be like that, then keep the money in the car and be like, I don't have the money if you don't have Gene, you know? No, yeah, he's an idiot. Um, Um, And then the second thing is, is that his son, Scotty, is his life is ruined like his mom is dead his grandfather's dead and his dad is probably going to go to prison for a very very long time rest of his life is it that i mean i'm not he's, i'm he's, i'm no lawyer but it's a conspiracy to to commit murder in a in a um he would uh, probably be held responsible for every person that those two killed really which is, which is seven people even the three guys off the side of the road yeah just because of what like a conspiracy to because it's very it's reasonably foreseeable that when you hire people to kidnap your wife um that's a it's a it's a uh, what's the inherently dangerous crime that it's foreseeable that other people could get hurt and you're responsible because you are the one that caused this to happen and you say seven, so it ends up being Gene, the policeman, the two people on the side of the road, 
Um, Steve Buscemi eventually gets killed. Who's the other two? Oh, Wade and then... Tollbooth guy. Oh, Tollbooth guy. Yeah. Some states, they wouldn't get you for Buscemi being killed. Um, some states would. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he should go to jail forever. I don't think they probably can't get him I know, death penalty, and I don't even know if either of those states has that. But I know earlier we were talking about how maybe he's not evil. Maybe he's just an idiot. I mean, he's definitely an idiot, but maybe he's not evil. But having done that and not thinking of the consequence that you're putting your own son through, like, that's evil to me. Yeah, but it's, it's also like a, it's like a, a slippery slope that he went down, right? He just, he was overconfident in his plan. And he's like, no one's going to get hurt. I'm going to get the money and our life's going to be great. And then just things kept getting worse and worse and he couldn't control it. Um, yeah, he's definitely a bad person. I'm not saying he's a good person. I'm not saying he's even just not a bad person, but um, I do think he's more dumb than evil. The other thing is when he gets home after, you know, Wade being killed, Jerry like gets home and Scotty's like, hey, Stan Grossman called. Are you going to call him back? He's like, I'm going to bed because <laughs> he's like, what, what can I do? I can't, I can't fix this. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to sleep. This is a bad, a bad situation that he's in right now. I do like, so we already talked a little bit about the guy, who, the random guy who calls the cop and he's like, I'm a bartender. And this guy asked me for, you know, if he could find a hooker. And I was like, you know, I don't do that. And <laughs> it's clearly Buscemi. And he's like, the last guy that thought I was a jerk ended up dead. Um, and, you know, he kept saying, oh, I'm, I'm just going crazy at the lake. And then the guy's like, and then I called it in. End yeah. of story. <laughs> Like the yeah. cop doesn't realize the story's over. He's like, I'm done talking. Like, that's everything. I love how at the end of that scene there, it's just like, oh, the weather, yeah. And they all and they both like just look up in opposite directions and just start walking away from each other. It's like what a Midwestern way to like end a conversation. Right. Um, right after this, we get Buscemi realizing how much money's actually in the briefcase. And when I first saw it, I was like, he's just burying this in the middle of nowhere with this little um ice pick like windshield scraper to mark it. I was like, that is so stupid. And then I thought about it. I was like, oh, he's literally just hiding it to go talk to to Stormare, give him his half, and then saying, I'm never seeing you again. So he's immediately going to go back and get it. So it's like, that would probably be good enough. And it's like, well, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot of options very quickly. What Um, I found really funny is in that part that his plan would have worked if he wasn't so hard-pressed on – um wanting the ownership of the car yeah i want to get to that when we get there because that part doesn't make any sense to me um but real quick so francis talks to a different old friend who gives her all the skinny on mike yanagita and that he's crazy and never married to this woman and um you know she's still alive and right after this this is where francis then decides to go talk to jerry again and Jerry's like, I don't want to help you. And they go through all this. And then he, he basically runs away and she sees him. Um, and then we get to Buscemi coming back to Peter Stormare. Buscemi walks in and says, here's your 40. You can keep my truck. I'm going to keep the car. 
And Peter Stormare says, we have to split the car. And he's like, how the fuck do we do that? And he's like, one of us pays for the other. Buscemi basically shows him the gun and like, I'm not fucking arguing, you know, I'm not arguing about this. I'm keeping the car. Why does he want to keep that car? That car that obviously like people know about instead of the truck you already own. And if you keep the truck, then he'll just let you go. Like he's never, he's like this fucking crazy person is just going to leave you alone. How bad is that truck? Why don't you just keep the truck? Again, I think it's a lot of the same thing that if he so easily gives up on something that's not really worth it, then it comes off as like, well, that's suspicious that you just very easily gave up on fighting for that. Again, I, I understand that's not probably what they were doing. That's something I would do. Being like, hey, look, I really want this car. Oh, if you want this car so badly, pay me 20 Gs for it. It's like, okay, that would come off as super suspicious. It's like, wait a minute. Why are you so cool with it all of a sudden? Yeah, I mean, you'd end up with an ax in your neck too. So that's like, that's fine. What I think is you come in and you're like, I'm so fucking pissed. Look at my fucking face. Here's your 40. Here's my 40. I'm taking my truck and getting the fuck out of here. You can keep that fucking car. I just, I'm done. And like, you see that Gene's dead and you're just like, I'm done with this. And then like you leave and you get out. I love when Steve Buscemi does see when Gene is, is dead on the ground and he doesn't like even care. Like it, it's not even a, the smallest of concern. He's like, oh, what happened to her? Oh, she wouldn't shut up. So I killed her. Okay, cool. Well, listen, so here's your 40. <laughs> I'm, I'm out. Bye. Also, why don't, when you say, I'll give you my truck, I'm keeping the car, and Stormare's like, well, no, you have to pay for the car. It'd be like, well, all right, well, what about my truck? How much is my truck worth? Like, why don't we consider that in the equation, too? Like, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make a sense. And then Stormare takes an ax to him, which we talked about uh, earlier, but this reminds me exactly of John Malkovich and Burn After Reading. It's like almost the same shot of him coming with, that was like a smaller hatchet, and this is like a huge fucking axe. So I know that when we talked about this, you, d- you didn't come to your second watch, but I was correct, right? right? That was an axe, not a shovel? It was a huge axe, yeah. very big axe. Yes. Which makes sense because he had to chop up the body to put it through the, the uh, wood chipper anyway. So what did you think about that scene? Like how, like production design, and like do you think that was like a real – like, did you read up on, like, what they actually had to put through the wood chipper to, like, get that red snow? No. No? No, I didn't. I did read that that wood chipper is on display somewhere in, like, some North Dakota town or something like that. That's all I got. I like um, to think that uh, that Brainyard, the home of Paul Bundy, instead of a giant statue of Paul Bundy, that it's now just a giant statue of Francis McDormand and being, like, the home of, of Fargo. <laughs> What do you think the name of the guy is with the axe? Paul what? I, I said Paul Bunyan. Yes, that's what she said, yes. Okay. That's not what she said. Is that not what I said? You said Paul Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Bundy's cousin. <laughs> yeah, well, kind of. this movie kind of felt like it. Um. Yeah, so I'm now imagining Paul Bundy <laughs> as Ted Bundy's cousin, but like same serial killer tendencies, but just with a heavy Minnesota accent and the politeness. And he just cuts logs instead of people. No, he cuts people. He's just really nice about it. Um, so real quick, just to get to the wood chipper scene. So Francis finds out 
um, Jean and Wade are missing. She's in the car and Lou being the idiot he is, he's like, well, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm just, you know, we got that report about uh, the guy, the funny looking guy who said he's staying up at the lake and that he killed someone. Um, and then she sees the car the whole time. I'm just like, Oh my God, why are you going? Like, this guy's crazy. Like you're going around here just with your gun. And then when she like, she pulls up on him, has her gun out and it's like police. And like, you can't hear her over the wood chipper, which is so funny. Yeah. And then when he finally does like notice her, his move is to throw a wood piece at her and then just run. And I was like, all right, well, I guess you're not the, the, killer that i thought you were i mean what do you do in that situation especially since he's probably like well first of all you have to think of it this way right the lake is frozen and there's probably other cabins on that lake and it's clear it's a clear day are you telling me there's no other neighbors around that are like looking clear across the lake and just seeing like red blood and guts spewing from a from a wood chipper Second of all, he's probably not like prepared. He probably doesn't have a gun or an axe on him right then and there. But third of all, and most importantly, I love how he's using a log to stuff the foot of Steve Buscemi down into the wood chipper. Yeah, I also don't get why he needed to try and get rid of Steve Buscemi's body. Why he couldn't have just taken off once he killed him. 80K in the truck. I don't. I don't get it either. I think it just makes the last scene cool. And I, I accept that as an answer. Okay. Actually, how interesting would it be, because Gene's dead, if you made Steve Buscemi's death look like a suicide? And then you find a, a large person and you burn their body, making it seem like yours. And that's how you cover up your tracks. Yeah, so it looks like they killed Gene and then this dude with the ax wound in his neck hung himself. <laughs> no, because he, he had the perfect... So the gunshot that Wade shot him with hit his cheek, right? So he could have shot himself in the face but the first shot missed. So the second shot killed him, and then he burned the other body. And did they only have one gun? It seemed like, like they only had one gun. Huh? It seemed like they only had one gun. Yeah, I guess. It's like Buscemi gets the gun for today, so then that's why he needs the axe. Yeah. And as you tell this crazy person that to fuck off, like, if you're just, like, keeping an eye on the door as you go to the car, like, you could have easily shot him as he runs at you. But instead, you like turn around at the last second. Fucking idiot. He deserves to die. Um, I like the, just to wrap this up, the troopers finding Jerry in the hotel and him preparing to run out in like his underwear. He's going to like, in the middle of this winter, run outside, like through the window and then dragging him back through and him shrieking like a little girl. That, yeah, it's great. Um, and then it just ends with uh, Francis finding out her husband got on the three cent stamp. And that's like, it's just back most, to normal. It's so funny because one, it's, it, it almost goes down like, oh, she didn't just solve a, a sextuple homicide. You know, it's just like, oh, another day of police business. How's your day, honey? Oh, I just won a competition. 
of being, you know, my paintings on a stamp now. And then that's like the biggest like win for the household of that week. I mean, if it had been the, the normal stamp, but the three cent stamp, I think you could maybe not bring that up. But it, it ends so wholesome. Like it's just so, so wholesome how she's like proud of him and he's proud of himself. And then it just ends. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I like that it ended that way. Just like, like not a care in the world about like this craziness that happened. Just like, all right, back to our normal life. And this will probably be like one of the only homicides we ever have to deal with. Or definitely like, like one of the craziest ones we ever have to deal with. So. So I watched this film with my mom and um, she found it incredibly boring, which I'm kind of sad about because I really like it. But yeah, I watched it by myself. Well, I, I don't know what that says about me or my mom or whatever, but I mean, I, I didn't think this film was boring. It could have it could come off that way if you weren't like paying attention, which I don't think she was, but um, kind of like droning midwestern accents i guess could come off as boring but i thought that the the plot and the energy of the movie was like pretty high paced no absolutely i mean i don't know if you find buscemi getting shot in the face boring or him getting an axe to the neck or the the kidnapping scene i think really like if you appreciate the comedy of this movie you won't find it boring the story is definitely slow paced. It's also super short though. And then like, once it gets into it, it really gets into it. So I um, really appreciated this movie. I was a lot happier watching it once I realized it wasn't exactly true. And I wasn't watching a reenactment of several people dying. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of I finally watched. I'm Milan. And this is David. Oh yeah. We finally watched Fargo. Yeah. Oh yeah.